If we can be mindful enough to just realize that this could be the last time, then maybe we won't live with regrets. You don't want to live with that stuff. You really want to live making that moment as good as it can be when every moment could be the last one. Welcome back to Roger That, the podcast dedicated to navigating you through the heavy haze of dementia. This is part two of a two-part conversation with Dr. Sabat, who was professor and researcher on the cognitive and social strengths of people living with dementia. So if you missed part one, go ahead and go listen to that first. We'll wait right here for you. Dr. Sabat, let's jump right back in. You know, it's so funny how you can you can really help people Man, and it's tough. I know it's tough for, for caregivers because, I mean, I, I watched this with my mom and my, I was coaching my dad. They lived 260 miles away from me at the time. So it was every day and, you know, coaching when I wasn't there. And uh, one, one night I, I was invited to dinner with, uh, th- this is really an amazing situation. This is a retired general who had been diagnosed with dementia. His wife heard me speak at, at a nursing home. They asked me to speak. And she got in touch with me and said, oh, I really want you to meet my husband, Melissa. And so she invited me for dinner at their home. And one of their adult children was visiting from out of town. Who's, and she's a nurse. And so I went. And, and Mrs., Mrs. Yu made a, a wonderful salmon, um, broiled salmon and baked salmon, whatever, and salad and vegetables. And I was chatting with him. He was a, you know, an old New Yorker by when he was growing up, and he was a Yankees fan, and I knew all about that stuff. And so my dad was in the Navy, and he was in World War II. This general, he was second lieutenant in Omaha Beach on D-Day and stayed in the Army for 36 years anyway. So we finish eating, and the, the women are cleaning off the table, and, and General Yu says to me, and I see, I don't even know what I had for dinner. And so I said to him, well, I don't know about that. Let's see. Did you have chicken? And he said, no, I think it was fish. I said, you're exactly right. It was salmon. And he starts laughing and says to his wife, when's this guy coming back here again? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so, you know, he needed to be, he needed to be given a cue, you know, something to trigger him. And, and a lot of times people need that. We all need triggers, right? I mean, you're in one room in the house. You, you say to yourself, I got to go to the kitchen and do this and this and this. And you do some few other things, and then you go to the kitchen, and you say, okay, why am I here? You know, and it's like... Brought me back to what you said a little while ago about the computer retrieving info. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's very, very similar. You need the cue to get him to fish. You need to know the file name for the computer to retrieve exactly. the file. Yeah, so a correlation there. There's another thing that I, I just one more example I'd like to, to bring up. I was co-leading a support group for people with, with Alzheimer's. And there was a woman in the group. She was a retired middle school teacher, I think middle and high school teacher from New York City. And let me tell you what, I mean, I grew up in New York City. I mean, those people are my heroes. I mean, anybody can go into a classroom with people raging hormones and all that stuff five days a week and, and be good at it. You have to be really special. So anyway, and she was very special. You could see it in the support group. And, and I wanted to interview her. And so I said to her after a support group meeting, I said, look, I'd like to interview you if you don't mind. And, and she said, sure. And I said, well, how about she used to drive to the, the, the um, support group met at, at a local church. And she used to drive there. She lived close by. 
And so I said, well, I'll, how about if I phone you and we can arrange to meet? And she gave me her phone number. And so I phoned her the next day and, and I, we were talking and I said, well, how about if we, how about if we meet tomorrow at the church at 10 o'clock? And she said, oh, that, that would be fine. Thanks. And, and, and we start talking about something else. And then a few minutes later, she says, well, don't you think we ought to uh, decide when we're we going to meet? Now, right away, you know, she doesn't have memory loss because she's, she's asking about meeting at the church, which is something that is not something that we were talking about forever. It's something that came up more recently, right? But she doesn't recall what I had said about meeting at the church at 10 tomorrow. So I said, well, I, I treated this as, okay, I'm going to answer this question as if it were the first time I've ever heard it. And so uh, I, I just said, well, okay, how about at the church tomorrow at 10? And she said, oh, that's fine. That's, that's terrific. And, I, and we start talking about something else. And a few minutes later, she said, well, don't you think we ought to decide what we're going to meet? <laughs> I said, well, how about at 10 o'clock tomorrow at the church? And she said, okay, that's good. And this went on about five or six times. And each time she asked the question again, I answered it as if it were the first time, which is really important because if I had said, well, what did I tell you? I mean, what the hell's wrong with you, buddy? I mean, I, if, I, if I could tell you what you told me, I wouldn't be asking this question again. <laughs> so so I, I just, so, and I know this is tough. I mean, I know, you know, treating it as the first time every time is tough for caregivers. I mean, you know, this is someone you love. You don't want to see them showing signs of decline. And it's really, so, it's so, it's, I don't want you to be doing this, for God's sakes. I want you to be okay. And, and that's where the exasperation starts entering and you start screaming and it doesn't do any good. So anyway, I know that's tough, but it's, it takes practice to start to just like, as if it were the first time, answer it. It's like Jack Webb in Dragnet, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just answer the question. Dragnet. Um, oh, I saw that on the History <laughs> Channel, I think. The, the, oh. TV, the old TV show Dragnet, you know. You know, just, just, just the facts, man. Just tell me the facts. I don't want any of this. Just give me the facts. So anyway, this goes on right. six times. And so finally she says, so what time are you going to meet? And I said, take a guess. And she said, 10. I said, that's right. Now, see, when I said take a guess, that changes the whole dynamic in the situation. If I said, what did I tell you? Now, you know, it's, oh, my God, what did he tell me? Oh, what do you want? Take a guess. We can always guess wrong. There's nothing embarrassing about that. But that takes the pressure off. But when you think about it, think about, suppose there were, going, there were, suppose there were 12 hours of daylight time. And suppose further that we decided to meet during the day. She had a 1 in 12 chance of, being, of guessing correctly. But who said it was on the hour? Maybe it was on the half hour. Maybe it was on the quarter hour. The odds against her guessing correctly were, were huge. So the fact that she guessed correctly in that sense meant that she made a memory of what I had told her, but she needed a way to get at it that was not anxiety-provoking. And if I had said to her, what did I tell you? Okay, now we go. Here we go, right? So that's another example of, you know, take a guess is easy. You know, so what if you're wrong? If you, I mean, but but she was right, and every time I would do that, I mean, that's what your 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 example earlier about when I, you know, I said, the woman comes over to me and said, "Do you have something to at the day center? Do you have something for me to do?" You know, it's like like what? Well, she couldn't tell me, but if I said take a guess, she would have gotten it. 
So, so it, that, that's how memory loss doesn't make any sense. It's really a memory problem in a particular way. But you got to know that stuff is getting in, if, especially if it's important. Wow, this is, this is such good information for us and our listeners. I'd like to touch base a little bit on what is referred to as wandering, because there's this per- perception maybe that people with dementia should just sit in a chair and not get up and walk around the house or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. or figure out where they are or, you know, get a yeah. change of scenery or get the pressure off their rear end. Yes. I talk about that a lot. <laughs> I mean, for goodness sake. I was I was visiting, a, a, it was a kind of an opening of a new uh, assisted living place, and um, and the marketing person was giving a tour. And it was one of these places where the, the residents' rooms, were, it was kind of organized so that there was like a wheel with spokes. So the hub of the wheel consisted of you know, a hairdresser and, you know, little stores and things like like a town. Mm-hmm. And then the spokes of the wheel were the ways to go to people's rooms and such. So we were, he's showing us around and it's a group of us. And, um, and there was a woman who was a resident there and she was just kind of walking around that hub in circles, just walking and walking and walking. And he just, of course, he pointed her out and that's one of our wanderers. And, and I'm thinking to myself, exactly what you said, Bobby, you know, what is, what the hell is this person supposed to be doing? I mean, is there something to, I mean, if you want to take a walk, where is she going to walk? This is a way for her to walk and, and not get lost. And she, she can always be familiar in a place. So yeah, people will go places and they may not be able to tell you where they're going, but it doesn't mean they're aimlessly wandering. See, that's, Right. That's so important to distinguish between those things. Now, there is a, a, a care home that we visited where they actually understood that so well that there's a fenced-in area that goes around the building mm-hmm. and it, you know, it passes a park bench. Anytime somebody wants to go outside, they can do that and, and go for a walk. But... It, you know, a lot of home caregivers, they don't understand that. And, of course, it wouldn't be necessarily be safe if, they're, if they can get lost in the neighborhood. But people get upset with them just walking from room to room. Oh, yeah. yeah well, that's, I think, Atul Gawande talks about this sort of thing with some of these places are geared to keeping people safe. But, but emotionally and spiritually, they are in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about agency? What about I want to take? A, I was sitting, I was sitting with a friend. A friend of mine was having a kidney removed one day, and I was sitting with her, his wife, for about five, six hours, playing endless games of Scrabble just to keep her company. After a while, I mean, I just, I mean, my backside was starting to get semi-nausea. Enough of this, so I had to get up and just walk around. And if somebody would have said to me, "Where are you going?" I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I just need to move, you know, and people need to move. There was an interesting case of that, actually. There was a woman in a a care home who would get dressed up to the nines every day with heels and would walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and to the point where she actually had blisters on her feet. Well, I mean, it turned out that she had spent her professional life in retail sales. 
And she was always walking around and she was always doing that. And she had to be busy. She had to be doing something. And so it, that's the sort of thing where if you could, where are you going? I mean, I'm just, I'm just walking could be an end in itself. <laughs> that's one of the things that Mike's dad always walked for a half hour, two or three times a day, every single day. Um, that's, he, he was extremely introverted, but he wanted, he need, he said, you can't loaf all the time. And, and he would go and he would go for a walk and he would take notes mentally about what was going on in the neighborhood, who, who planted flowers, who got a dog, which dogs barked, all of this stuff. That was his time to himself because when he first came to live with us, you know, we said, oh, we'll walk with you. Well, that was disturbing to him because <laughs> what pace was it supposed to be? You know, where did you mm -hmm. want to go? It really is not something that he enjoyed or wanted. He, he wanted that time right. to himself. Yes. Yes. It's, and that's, I mean, that's so perfect, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like living your life in, in, in a way. That's, that's so important. We, each of us does that. I mean, right? I mean, we all have our things. Got to have the me time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I say that all the time. I need some Zen time. I just need to do this yeah. thing. Well, there's, there's something that I found so heartwarming when I listened to your talk um, the, uh, last night, actually, in preparing for the show today. And you made the comment about make good mm -hmm. moments. And then you gave the example of you and your father. And I felt, I, I mean, I still feel it. And would you please share that sure, story? Sure. I mean, and it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, but you know, you, <laughs> now I'm, I'm kind of getting the chills myself. So uh, uh, I was very close to my dad and, and, um, and my mom. I mean, you know, when, I guess for a long period of time, I, I would phone them every night at the same time. And, and, you know, there were times when, you know, my mom was still alive and, and I would say to my dad, you know, and I would talk to her and she really, she's having trouble speaking really well, but you know, it was okay. We can communicate. But he, he would say to me, well, it was a good day today. And, and I, and I'm in psychologist. Not what makes a good day good. And what made a good day good for him was nothing bad happened. And, you know, mom didn't throw, you know, tons of toilet paper into the thing and get the toilet all stuffed up or nothing, no crazy stuff from the hospitals and bills, whatever. Anyway, but I phoned every night at the same time. And after my mom died, I, I continued to do that. And, and we always ended our phone calls by me saying, I love you, dad. And him would always, he would always say, I love you dearly, Steve. And then we would hang up. And it was July 24th, 2006. And we had phone conversation the same way, ended the same way. And I knew that he was, you know, he had a colon cancer and he had macular degeneration. He was still, he was living independently and he was, he was just 96. And, and so I knew that somebody was going to come the following morning to, to do some blood stuff because he had to be transfused. And I, I asked, you know, have, you know, just before we got off the phone, I said, just have, you know, have them have, call me when the person gets there. And anyway, we said goodnight and exchanged I love yous. And um, what I didn't know was that was the last conversation. That was the last time. And because the next morning you know, he was gone. 
and 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 I I always think about how it it it's very special to me that the last words we spoke with one another were I love you, mm-hmm. and and so every moment could be the last moment. You don't know when the last moment will be, and it's never when you think it might be, and even when even when you kind of expect it could be, but it, you know it's never going to be that day. And so I, I really feel like, you know, if we can be mindful, and it's not easy to do at all, but if we can be mindful enough to just realize that this could be the last time, then maybe we won't live with regrets and say, well, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have done it. I, I wish I hadn't gotten angry with that. That was the last thing. And that's, I don't want to be, you don't want to live with that stuff. So you really want to live with that, that making that moment as good as it can be when every moment could be the last one. Well, I got to tell you that the first words that Bobby and I say to each other before we go to bed at night is, mm-hmm. I love you. And the first words we say when we get up in the morning is, that's, I love that's you. That's beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. You know, I, man, you know, you, <laughs> I salute you. I think that's You know, he, he, he's, he's a very special man, but, you know, in addition to nah. loving each other, we really like each other, and you know, well, and that's it, yeah. and that's why after you know thirty five years and counting, well, it's it's not long enough. It's not it's not long no. enough. No, it's never long enough, <laughs> and and um, and but and, and you just don't know. And you know, I had um, have, have a dear friend who I know many, many, many decades now, and she's now the widow of a person who I, I can honestly say was my brother by, by different mothers and fathers. But, uh, and, and he was an extraordinary physician, researcher at, at the National Institutes of Health for many years. And uh, he, he died, um, he was only 67, and he had this cancer that was the most aggressive cancer that the Hopkins people had ever seen. And there she was, you know, uh, after 40-something years of marriage, all of a sudden gone, you know, and I, 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 I you know, she, she's rebuilt her life and her, her kids are all great that way and grandchildren and all, but we, 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 she and I have a mutual friend whose husband has been recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's and the friend says, I feel robbed, you know, and, and I'm thinking, you feel robbed. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you can still make good moments, you know, <laughs> and so that's why it's so yeah. great that the two of you react to each other and and love each other and like each other the way you do. Well, I have to say, I know that I learned a lot. Well, what one of the things that kind of gave me a little bit of an aha was when he talked about um, the recall versus memory, or you have the computer. And if you can't remember where you stored the mm-hmm. memory, you can't recall the memory. And our brain is a computer. You know, sometimes I tell people, oh, I have so much stuff in my head every now and then something falls out. But it, it, it's really, it hasn't fallen out. It's still there. <laughs> oh, it is. It That's is. Right. You know, it's really kind of funny. I was, I was <laughs> just about that. I, I, I oftentimes now, and by the way, you should know, and, and your listeners should know that, as we get older, all of us, no matter, no diagnosis whatsoever, as we get older, recall becomes more and more difficult for us. So 
Just to give you an example, I now I tell people, I'll, I'll think of it at two in the morning, you know, and, and, and I usually do. So what happened is the other day I'm having, I'm having email back and forth with a friend of mine in New York City. He's a real character. And, and anyway, this came, the conversation came around to, to people with huge numbers of children in the family. And, and he said well, he never knew anybody who, growing up who had more than four people in the family. And this is a New York City apartment living. And I said, well, across the street from me, there was a family with six children. I was one. I'm one of six. Oh, you're one. Well, I, oh, hey, there you go. And, and uh, I'm one of one. So, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I said there was, there was Jim and, and Ed and Tom. Uh, and, no, Jim and Tom and Ed. And then there was Mary Margaret and Mary Ellen. And, and, there's, and I just said, and there was another Mary. <laughs> I don't recall the last name, the middle name. I, sure enough, I got up you know, in the middle of the night and Mary Elizabeth came to me. <laughs> it was there. And, and so many times things that, that are especially important to us in one way or another that are old, it's all there. And sometimes then it has to come back. If you watch the Tony Bennett interview with... Anderson Cooper was who was on 60 Minutes, and it was he. He's 95 years old. He had Alzheimer's. Had Alzheimer's. And sort of very flat, blank, and all. And he and they were doing. They were going to do a concert at Radio City, his last concert at Radio City Music Hall, and and they were kind of Lady Gaga was going to perform with him, and and there was a concern about what's going to happen when he gets on stage. You know, the lights are down and. Well, the curtain opens up and bam, he is there. He is all there singing these songs. I mean, it was all in him. Two days later or whatever, sitting around with his wife and Anderson Cooper, he, he doesn't seem to recall having that experience, having had that experience at all. And, but th there's so much in us. And, and, and if we can just tap into that, you know, you, somebody calls, if somebody, if I'm in a place I don't know, I mean, a different play in some restaurant I've never been in. And somebody screams, hey, professor, I'm going to turn around. You know, I mean, so that's it, right? And so there is this, all of this stuff in us that's old and it's, it's part of our personalities. It's deeply woven into us. And, and if we can get at those things when we are caring for people, then there's, that part of themselves comes flying out. It's beautiful to see. One last okay. thing that... Um he said that really struck me was people may forget what you said, but not how you made them feel. Absolutely. And that was kind of goes back to what you said uh, uh, with your, with the implicit, but at any rate, Dr. Sabat, it's been an absolute joy to have you on our show and to be associated with you in some small way. And um, I can't thank you enough. I am absolutely honored to be with you. I mean, we're kindred spirits, and and whenever, whenever there's a chance to do some good, it it, it warms my heart. And I and you are doing some great good. I listen to your programs, I listen to people who, with whom you speak, and you're, you're doing a great service for an awful lot of people. Thank and you and so even much. if you change one single life, the ripple effects are huge. So I, exactly. I thank you. One is a blessing, two is a miracle. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> and I really, so I, I appreciate, I really appreciate you having me on your program. It's been a pleasure. 
You can find more information about Dr. Sabat and links to his books on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Bobby and I would love to hear from you, answer any questions you might have, or just find out how you're doing. Please connect with us on Roger That Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.